I'm Sinead O'Carroll, editor of The Journal. Before we start this episode, I wanted to ask you something. When the survivors of mother and baby homes felt dismissed by the state's formal investigation, your presenter, Orla Ryan, was really motivated to produce even more reliable, meaningful, independent journalism about what happened to the women and children in these institutions. Our aim has been to provide them with a space to tell you about their own lives, in their own words, using their own voices. So, over the past year, we've been making Redacted Lives, which, as you've been hearing, does just that. It has been a big commitment from our newsroom, but one that we hope you are finding worthwhile and that you believe should be heard by as many people as possible. Now, we're asking listeners like you to support us. A donation will go a long way in helping us to keep doing work like this. Please go to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute and choose between a monthly or one-off contribution. Redacted Lives is a six-part documentary series by The Journal that tells the real story of mother and baby homes. From what happened within, to how the state continues to deny survivors access to information, proper redress and ownership of their true stories. The episodes explore the lives of the mothers and their children, in their own voices and their own words. How they were forced back from England to Ireland, how mothers were separated from their children, and how a commission of inquiry raised more questions than answers. We're following some of those families on their journeys of possible reconnections, as well as talking to relatives seeking justice for their loved ones who have died. We're also putting the state's botched attempt at righting these wrongs under the microscope, and we'll seek answers from the minister responsible. Episode 3. Tune. This episode contains themes that some listeners may find distressing. Tomb is not just a burial ground, it's a social and cultural sepulchre. That's what it is. Because as a society, uh, in the so-called good old days, we did not just hide away the dead bodies of tiny human beings. We dug deep and we dug deeper still to bury our compassion, to bury our mercy, to bury our humanity itself. You see, no nuns broke into our homes to kidnap our children. We gave them up to what we convinced ourselves was the nuns' care. We gave them up maybe to spare them the savagery of gossip, the wink and the elbow language of delight, in which the holier than those were particularly fluent. And we gave them up because of our perverse, in fact, morbid relationship with what you call respectability. When I arrive in here, I just I feel the presence of all the babies that were just discarded. I feel that there's sort of a longing or something for recognition. And the way that they were found, so it was exceptional how those two boys back in 1975 uh, discovered one of those chambers. I mean, it was a chance in a million. And if those two little boys hadn't found those bones, this place would be forgotten forever. But uh, they can't be forgotten. It was an atrocity. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of beautiful little babies and toddlers who were just discarded. Catherine Corliss has shown people around the site of the former mother and baby home in Tume countless times over the last decade. She has come here with everyone from survivors to politicians, relatives to journalists. Her tireless research uncovered the fact that hundreds of babies and young children were buried at the site. 
prompting that powerful speech from then Taoiseach Enda Kenny. And for a while indeed it seemed as if in Ireland our women had the amazing capacity to self-impregnate. And for their trouble we took their babies and we gifted them or we sold them or we trafficked them or we starved them or we neglected them or we denied them to the point of their disappearance from our hearts and from our sight, from our country and in the case of Tume and possibly other places from life itself. Ten years after Catherine first published her research in a local history journal, a commission of investigation has been and gone, but the remains of these children are still buried. Campaigners have long called for the remains to be excavated and reinterred at a more appropriate site. Some relatives also want DNA testing to be carried out on the remains, in a bid to find out if their loved one is among the dead. The very word, tomb, has become synonymous with mother and baby institutions and all they represent. This particular site is such an important part of the modern history of mother and baby homes in Ireland. It has sparked so many unanswered questions that a spotlight needs to be shone on it at every opportunity. The site is nestled away inside a housing estate on the Dublin Road. It has become a place of pilgrimage for many people, survivors and strangers alike. People often leave flowers or teddy bears. Some pray, some don't. A statue of the Virgin Mary watches over the grotto. The atmosphere at the site is haunting. A playground, just to one side of the grotto, was empty on the day we visited. It is likely that children are also buried under this area. A lot of the locals here, they're very disturbed at the idea of their children playing on top of little babies. And uh, they are under the playground. We have the evidence from the plans of the housing estate when it went up. We know that part of the playground is full of little, uh, little white boxes with babies, as is the driveway in. So um, this has to be rectified. There's no other way around it. It's a sad place to visit for the survivors that I know that have family buried here because, I mean, they can't get it out of their mind. This is a sewage area. This is a sewage tank. And as one man himself said, who has a little sister buried here in the 1950s, he says, how can I come here and pay homage to my little sister while she lies in a sewage facility? And just going by that man, he wants his little sister exhumed. He wants to bring her and bury her with their their mother. So the babies need to be taken out of here. They're in those chambers, and they deserve a dignified, decent burial in a Christian graveyard. Catherine's name will forever be linked to the tomb mother and baby home. When she started researching the Bon Secours Institution just over 10 years ago, she had no idea of the chain of events she would set into motion. She was attending a local history class and was struggling to choose a topic to explore for an assignment when she remembered her encounters with the so-called home babies as a child. Went to school then and these children would come in a bit later in the day, a few minutes later and they'd leave earlier. And uh, I can see them sitting across from me, uh, just sitting upright, scared faces, uh, miserable looking kids and not being included. I have little brief uh, visions of them. I can see them. I can see the 10 foot high wall that we passed going in and out to school every day. We lived out that way. And... Uh, it was a bit creepy, you know, a bit, and there was kind of glass shards on top of the wall as well. And uh, you just walked very quickly past that area because uh, you just knew it was freaky or something or, or, or a, bit, a bit scary. 
In a conversation with her lecturer, she recalled how human remains had been found by young boys at the site of the former home in the 1970s. At the time, people assumed they were from the famine, or when the institution operated as a workhouse. Catherine hadn't heard much about the institution since then, and wanted to find out more. She started to visit the site and look up documents about the home. I got the story when the housing estate was being built, how two young boys in that area, they found what they thought was a crypt. What happened was the two young boys were robbing apples in the garden near the place. And the owner came out and chased them. They jumped that high wall. And where they jumped, the ground kind of gave way. And what they saw underneath was a kind of um, a slab with a crack in it. And being young boys, of course, they prized open the slab. And they got the fright of their lives because in that, when they opened that slab, what they saw was little small skulls and bones all piled on top of each other uh, in that, what they thought was the chamber. And that's where the story went. Local people, understandably, started to ask questions. But they didn't get very far. When they told the nuns, the nuns course, they have a private hospital in Tume at the time. They inquired there, they asked the guards, they asked the archbishop in Tume and anyone else that could give them information. They asked the Galway County Council who owned that, they owned that ground. And they all said, oh, they must be, they must be from the time of the famine or the time of the workhouse. There was a few burials here from the time of the famine. And it was put down to that. They closed in the slab, they brought uh, up the priest to throw a drop of holy water on it. For they, what they said was the famine babies. And it was left at that then. And there wasn't a word about it. This sparked Catherine's curiosity. If it was just that, why wasn't it marked in some way? What really proved everything for me was uh, the present map of that area where the grotto is, where the boys found the bones. I, oh, I overlaid that on top of an old map of, for, for uh, 1925. And lo and behold, it said across the older map, sewage tank. So this was no chamber. This was a sewage tank belonged to the workhouse. So I started putting two and two together. Uh, I knew then that they couldn't be workhouse babies because that was a working sewage tank up to the 1930s. And I said, there's no way to put babies into a working sewage tank because, I mean, it would block up the whole area, if nothing else. So, okay, I said, I had to find out how many babies and children died in the home. She looked at all the usual avenues of getting information like this, but could find out next to nothing. So again, I tried the nuns. They knew nothing. They had no records. I tried the Western Health Board. They had no records of burials. County Council, nobody. Nobody had records of burials. Knew anything about them. Totally dismissed the idea. There couldn't be home babies buried there. Tried the, they're probably in the main tomb graveyard across the road. She had hit a brick wall and found it strange that neither the Bonsecours nor Galway County Council had any burial records for children who died in the home. She went ahead and published her research in the Journal of the Old Tomb Society in 2012, writing that a staggering number of children died in the institution between 1925 and 1961. She acknowledged that the deaths took place during a period when Ireland had a very high infant mortality rate, but questioned why there were no burial records. At this point, she had only examined the records of about 200 children, not knowing this was only a fraction of the overall picture. At the end of my essay, I put the question mark, is it possible that the Bonsecore sisters would have put those babies in a, in a disused sewage area 
for burial purposes. I expect it. This is it. Somebody else will take this up. I really expected the uh, powers that be to look into this straight away and to see was this so and to open up the place. But there was nothing but silence, absolute silence after that. There was no outrage, no action, not even an acknowledgement in the local community. Catherine assumed the story would be picked up by local, if not national, media. But it wasn't. Undeterred, she continued to search for answers. I had to find out, first of all, how many died. And I got that from the births, deaths, marriages and gold with the registration office. Because they're public records and you'll get those anywhere. There's no, there's no confinement on those. I got the staggering number of 796 babies, children that died in the home and tomb, up to three years old, four years old. Uh, some of them a bit more, mainly up to one year and then a lot, two to three years. And I said, where are all these babies? So again, I was told, probably a plot in the main tomb graveyard there, but I said, there's no plaque or nothing. And I was getting destroyed and now there's lots of babies buried, no plaque and nothing on them. What do you, you know, what are you on about? Catherine wanted her research to be read by a wider audience. People needed to know the scale of what she had uncovered. She turned to journalist Alison O'Reilly. She came down, spoke to me because she had heard of it and uh, they put it on the front page and it went absolutely, what did say nowadays, viral and went around the world and um, all I can say is that there was immense pressure put on the government to do something, to act, to look into this and it all opened up then. Alison's article, A Mass Grave of 800 Babies, was published in the Irish Mail on Sunday on the 25th of May 2014. It caused a huge reaction in Ireland and, crucially, abroad. Catherine believes the international attention on Tume prompted the government to act quickly and establish a commission of investigation. Not alone was it national, it went international. And that was the big thing. That's what really put pressure on the government. It was only really then when the, when the Commission of Inquiry was set up because of that, and because of the test excavations that were carried out, the samples were taken from the bones that they found. I remember that day, March 2017, when Catherine's upon uh, made the announcement. Today I wish to place on the record of this house the Commission's update that significant number of human remains are buried in the site of the old mother and baby home in June. For survivors, loved ones, and campaigners, such as the tireless Catherine Corliss, it was a moment of vindication. After decades and years of hard work, determination, and unwavering commitment, the truth has been laid bare for all of us to see. This house and our entire state owes a debt of gratitude to Catherine Corliss for her work. Zippone, the Minister for Children at the time, confirmed that Catherine had been right all along. Catherine's phone was ringing non-stop. She was doing interviews with media in France, the US and Australia. Survivors and relatives of people who spent time in Tume were also getting in touch looking for information. From the moment she found out that children had been buried in an unmarked grave, Catherine says her primary goal has been to have their remains exhumed. To get them out of there has been my main focus from the very start. 
to give that message out to the Ireland and to the world and to congregations and to the church that what you did was wrong, pay for it now and give them the decent burial that, you're, that you didn't give them, that they should have got. Catherine's meticulous and detailed research uncovered a secret kept hidden for decades. She continues to campaign for answers, but a lot of the hard work is only just beginning for people whose family members were born or died in the tomb institution. Anna Corrigan was in her mid-50s when she found out she was not, in fact, an only child. She had two older brothers, John and William. A few years after her mother died, Anna started working on her family tree. Most of the questions she had were about her father's side of the family. In 2012, Anna contacted Bernardos, a charity that helps care for vulnerable children and also assists people looking for information about relatives who pass through mother and baby homes or other institutions. She wanted to get information about her dad and his siblings. As children, they spent time in various state-run institutions after their mother died. I went into Bernardo's to do some tracing uh, on my father because when my father was seven and his sister was six and his brother was five, their mother died of tuberculosis. The state came in and took the children away from their father and sentenced the children to 10 years each in the industrial homes because obviously they thought the church would do a better job rearing them than their own father, family. So I went into Bernardo's to look for some information on that and I found a lovely lady in there and she was very helpful. So she got me the records of my father and I discovered that my aunt Maura, she was 13 years of age. My father was from Dublin and uh, my aunt Maura was sent to Loch Ray industrial home and my father was sent to Kilkenny together with his brother and then when they were over the age of nine they were shipped over to Glynn in County Limerick. Then I discovered that my Aunt Maura had died in Lockeray. She was 13 years of age. They don't know where they buried her. During this conversation, Anna recalled a memory she had of her own mother, Bridget. I said to the lady, I had some recollection when I was young about hearing something. My mother and her brother were having a bit of to-do in the kitchen. And I came in, I was very, very young, and my uncle turned and said, do you know your mother had two babies? And my mother said, go out and play. And I get five or six and going out to play was much more interesting than actually listening to adults. But I said to the lady, I don't know if I dreamt it because it was an only child. Maybe I wanted brothers. Was it real? Was it imagined? You know, so, I mean, it was so far back. I was in my late 50s at that time. So she said to me, well, give me your mother's name, she said, and I'll, I'll check it up and tell me where your mother was from. My mother was from Clonfert, it was in East Galway, near Banlasloe. A few weeks later, Anna's phone rang. And I was here in the kitchen Christmas week and she rang me and she said, Anna, I, I have some information for you. And she said to me, um, can you come in after Christmas because we're coming to Christmas? And I said, can you tell me now, I said... She said, well, not really, because protocol, I have to kind of see it. And I said, look, I'm a grown adult. I said, you know, whatever. I said, please don't leave me like this. So she turned around and she said to me, Anna, yes, your mother did have two children in June. So she said to me, come in in January, she said, and we'll go through the paperwork. So I went in in January and she had got some information from, uh, it wasn't Tuzzle at that stage, it was the HSE Child and Family Tracing Agency or whatever at that stage. My mother gave birth to 
John, my brother, in 1946 in the Tume home. And he died in 1947 of the measles. He was 16 months old. And he's on the list of the 796 dead children. She gave birth the second time in 1950 to my brother, uh, William. And, but William had no death certificate. And she said to me, that's very strange. He was never registered as dead. No reason for his death. No, nothing. Anna's brothers might be buried at the tomb site, but she believes one or both of them may have been adopted and now live abroad. She has received certain documents over the years and William's date of birth was altered on some of them. A child's date of birth was sometimes changed on official documents in order to facilitate their adoption before they were six months old. That was previously the minimum age at which a child could be adopted in Ireland. Sometimes dates were also changed in a bid to make it harder for a mother to find her child if she came looking for them in the future. Adoption only became legal in Ireland in 1953, but before and after this date, children were illegally adopted, often by couples in the United States. In some cases, the children were deliberately recorded as dead However, they were still alive and now living with a new family. For the past decade, Anna has been trying to find out what happened to her brothers. And I wrote to the nuns then and I started up correspondence with them. They wrote to me in 2013 and they told me that a grave existed at the back of the home, which operated as a general grave. Then in 2013, in September, I was talking to my son-in-law and I said, my, my brother's a missing person. Like, I mean, he doesn't have a death certificate. He's disappeared off the face of the earth. So I went down to the local police station and I made a complaint that I said to the girl, I said, I, uh, I want to report a missing person. She said, yeah. The guard said, uh, yeah. And what's the name? And when did it happen? I said, 1951. I thought they were going to take me away in a white coat. And uh, she said, no, come in. So I went in and I told her what I knew and she was almost close to tears. But she said, whether it's a valid case for the police, she said, I don't know. She said, I'll have to write to my superintendent. So she got back to me the following week and said, yes, the superintendent said it's a valid case. Come down and make a formal statement. So I'd done that. One of the guards dealing with Anna's case put her in touch with Catherine Corliss. The women were both seeking answers about the tomb site and started to share information. By this point, Anna had received concerning medical records about John. So I gave Catherine the inspection report. And if you'll see it on the only name that's unredacted is John Dolan. And he was emaciated at 13 months old with a voracious appetite and no control over bodily functions. He was born normal and healthy. There's no medical reports for a child that deteriorated from normal and healthy to 13 months old to be emaciated with a voracious appetite. And then to die at 16 months old from the measles. He died in neglect and malnutrition. My mother was sending back five shillings a month for his upkeep and they were also getting money from the council because I have the paperwork. So I went to the guards again and I said, my brother didn't die of the measles. I said he died in neglect and malnutrition. Same procedure. Have to check with the superintendent, come down the following week, made the report and that report went down about John in 2014. Congenital idiot, that was actually put on, um, on his death cert. He died of the measles and he was a congenital idiot. And no paperwork, no nothing. You know, you would imagine there was a doctor in situ. All those nuns were actually uh, trained nurses. And yet there wasn't a medical file available. Now, my aunt died in Loch Ray in uh, 1918. 
And I have medical files for her on her medical history from 1918, from the industry at home. We were under British rule at the time, and yet I can't get them for my brother in 1946. Hundreds of children died at the Tume home over the years. Why did no official check where they were being buried? They were a direct provision home. They were covered by the Sanitary Services Act. Nobody is allowed to be buried in a place other than a recognised graveyard since 1947 or what was a recognised graveyard before the enactment of the Act. And under that law, there was imprisonment or, or a fine. I said, and you have stewardship over the graveyard as well. And you never asked the nuns where they were putting the babies. You're paying the nuns to look after them. They're telling you they're dying, and yet you never ask them where they're burying them. But you know they're not over in the graveyard because you have control over the graveyard as well because you're the Galway County Council. Legislation that will allow for the excavation of the site and tomb passed through the Oireachtas earlier this year, being signed into law by President Michael D. Higgins in July. The Institutional Burials Bill means that remains at tomb can be excavated and DNA testing can be carried out in a bid to identify who was buried there. The remains will then be reinterred at a more appropriate site. An independent office that will oversee the excavation in Tume is due to be established in the coming months. Survivors and relatives have expressed concerns that other sites may not be excavated for several years, if ever. Some campaigners have called for the site of the former mother and baby home in Bespra to also be excavated but others disagree. The government recently confirmed it has no plans to excavate the site in Cork City. This is despite the fact the burial place of over 800 children who died in Bespra, or shortly after being transferred from there to hospital, remains unknown. The Bespra estate originally covered 60 acres, but sections of the land have been sold off over the years. Due to the size of the site, and the fact some of it is privately owned, excavating the entire site would be difficult and is unlikely to happen. Relatives may never find out where their loved ones are buried. Children's Minister Roderick O'Gorman previously said the identification process at Tume and other sites would be one of the most complex recovery efforts of its kind ever undertaken. What happened at Tume is a stain on our national conscience. Since coming into this role, I've met with many of the families affected. In those meetings, I've heard that sense of urgency and frustration around why exhumation has not yet happened. And I share that frustration. These families want to give their loved ones the respect and dignity that they were so grievously denied in their short lives. Recovering the remains buried in Tume and then trying to identify them could take several years. And it may be impossible to identify some of the remains. Archaeologists who carried out the test excavation in Tume in 2016 and 2017 previously said the measures put in place to protect the site and the remains were not designed to last longer than six months. These temporary measures have now been in place for almost six years. Anna knows that if and when the tomb site is eventually excavated, she may still not get the answer she is seeking. If her brothers are indeed buried in tomb, she wants them to be laid to rest beside their mother, Bridget. If they are alive, she just wants to know they're okay. 
She's accepted the fact that, even if they are alive, she may never meet them. Either way, she needs to know the truth. I mean, like, I'm a realist. When I was in with the lady in Bernardo's, like, I mean, I know sometimes people could, like, I mean, if I found them, could turn around and say, well, look, don't want to know you. Like, I mean, I'm quite happy in my new life. You have to accept that. That's their choice. But at least I know I would have closure. The likelihood of confirming that one or both her brothers were buried in tomb is slim, but not impossible. She still holds out hope. However, she knows that with every passing day, this chance gets slimmer and slimmer. She is deeply frustrated that the tomb site has not been excavated to date. I've had a phone call with Roderick and we've had a Zoom call with him. I said, Roderick, you were handed a poison chalice, right? And I said... You've had your predecessor, you had Francis Fitzgerald in that, you had James Riley, you had Charlie Flanagan, you had Catherine Sapone, and now you're the one with the poison chalice. I would say to him to do what any human being would expect to be done. Those children dug up, identified, DNA'd. Uh, the DNA base kept indefinitely because, as I say, people will come forward, even if they do have to put the remains over into the graveyard. But well, do I have to get a JCB myself and go down? Because, I mean, what is it now? It's not a graveyard, so it's not covered by a graveyards act. It's covered up now with grass. So what is it? So it's a piece of common ground with a lot of bodies in it that people are saying is not a mass grave because it doesn't come under the terminology for a mass grave. So I go down with JCB myself and dig it up. Anna is just one of many relatives seeking answers and justice for their loved ones. A decade on from Catherine's discovery, little has changed with the tomb site itself. Anna's wound remains open and her questions remain unanswered. She may never know the truth, but she will never stop trying to find it. Many people had hoped that the commission of investigation into mother and baby homes which was set up following the discovery in June, would finally provide the answers they so badly needed. At last, survivors had an opportunity to tell the country what happened to them. But we'll hear how the inquiry didn't bring much closure, with experts and survivors questioning how it came to the conclusions that it did. Next time on Redacted Lives. I'd waited 41 years for somebody to ask the right questions, like how did I get out of England, who paid for my flight, who gave permission to anybody to take me out of England. I want answers. How do you come to those conclusions? Could you please explain how you actually reach these conclusions based on your own report? The big problem is silence on the part of the commissioners and the staff of the commission none of whom has come forward to answer absolutely legitimate questions. This is historical evidence. It's, it's fact. So you can then turn around and say, well, no, this didn't happen. No, people weren't abused. Uh, excuse me? Where's your head? Thanks for listening to episode three of Redacted Lies. The Bon Secours turned down a request to take part in an interview a spokesperson noted that the order cooperated with the Commission of Investigation, 
and previously made a 2.5 million euro donation towards excavation and a memorial at the tomb site. A spokesperson for Galway County Council said the local authority is deeply sorry for its past failings in relation to tomb. In a statement, the council welcomed the government's plan to excavate the site and said they remain committed to supporting survivors and relatives. If you pass through a mother and baby home or another institution and want to share your story, you can contact us in confidence by emailing redactedlives at thejournal.ie. Redacted Lives is created and presented by me, Orla Ryan, and produced by Nikki Ryan. Sinead O'Carroll is the executive producer. Dara Brophy and Christine Bohan were production supervisors. Taz Kelleher is our sound engineer, and design is by Lorcan O'Reilly. With thanks to Laura Byrne, Susan Daly, Adriana Costa, Carl Kinsella, and Jonathan McRae. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in these episodes, you can contact the Samaritans by calling 116-123. Subscribe to Redacted Lives, and you can help us keep telling important stories like this by sharing the series with a friend or leaving us a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow all the latest updates on thejournal.ie or via our Twitter page, at Redacted Lives. The next episode in the series will be available next Thursday. <laughs>